Blog Talk Radio. And all the world is football shape. It's just for me to kick Alright, welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Brandt. Let's see here. Let's get Keith back in. Let's get, get Keith back in. Um I did that. Brought you by, oh, okay. I thought I thought I had accidentally. No, that was that was out. me. I did that on purpose. <laughs> anyway, we're brought to you by Global Scars. Um, please go to their website. That they are they are your one stop for all soccer scars. And trust me, I'm just I just ordered another one because I ordered um, Love Thy Soccer from Sean Reed, who we've had on. God, I think. Was that on the old show or was it on this one that we had on Sean Reed on? Hmm. I think it's the By old way. one. I don't remember him being on. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you were. You you might have been involved. It's it's a it's basically a fan fan and a lot of media members were right about the um, history of the sport and Sean Sean is uh, putting like. Extra stuff in the in the mag in the um, package. I, I saw what he sent to Mark Frischkin today. It was impressive. So, anyway, I want to thank. If you guys want to buy that book, it's um, lovethysoccer.com and go and find it. He has a bit actually in there about Portland. So I'm sure Chris Gluck wouldn't mind perusing that <laughs> somewhere down the line. Yeah, might do. Yeah, I got a lot of scars yeah, it, too. Yeah, we we love our. The only scar I I don't have anything from the MLS, which is weird. I've got a um, Minnesota United one, but I kind of think I beat. I, I kind of think TJ felt guilty that I didn't have anything from the NASL. So, anyway, obviously you hear Keith, you hear Chris Gluck. Um, today we're going to talk a lot about women's soccer because we haven't done it in a while. And fortunately, this week, unlike last week, I did set it to an hour, so we're off at eight o'clock. Thank God. Um, and we're going to talk about Chivas. I know we have ranted and raved about it. I have written about it on the 90-Minute Cynic, and I have given the virtual hug to to Alicia Rodriguez because they're not coping well in Chivas, and I don't blame them one bit. And I'm glad you mentioned Alicia because I want to make sure that Alicia got a shout-out tonight. Uh, I, I exchanged a couple of messages with her on Twitter about that. Uh, you know, for those who followed Chivas, you know, whether it be the supporters, the writers, the players, the backroom staff, uh, the coaches, I feel bad for you, and I've been there. I've walked more than a mile in, those, in that pair of sambas uh, on a couple of occasions. Uh, you hate to see it happen. Um, it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's a sad sad thing to happen all the way around. Uh, you know, MLS has been lucky in that respect. This is only the third time this has happened. Uh, and I understand that's no consolation to the Chivas people. I'm not saying it is. Uh, I'm just saying it speaks to what you know what has happened in MLS as opposed to to other leagues. But there is one thing I have to, I got to mention this because it happened to come up is the new ownership group for the team when it restarts in 20 when they get a new team in 2017. Uh, one of the owners is going to be Peter Goober. He's a big time Hollywood hotshot. He's also a minority owner of the Golden State Warriors in the NBA. And he put out a rather interesting email to the rest of the Warriors staff today. Now, they had a press release that went out today because uh, the NBA season started today. And it's how, in fact, they have a, over 100 players 
from outside the United States playing in the NBA at the start of the season, which is the most they've ever had. And five, there are five out of 12 players on the Warriors who are from outside the United States. And um, where he, uh, Peter Goober sent out an email from his phone, he says, with that attachment uh, from the Warriors' director of media relations, and it mentions the players that are in there, uh, most notably Andrew Bogut and Leandro Barbosa. And Goober's reply included this line, and I'm quoting here, I'm taking Rosetta Stone to learn Hungarian, Serbian, Australian, Swahili, and Hoodish this year. But it's nice. This is from a report from Yahoo Sports, by the way. And yes, Hoodish was the word he used, which, of course, uh, has a very negative racial connotation. He later then sent out a follow-up email saying that it was a mistake or an autocorrect error on his phone. He meant to type in the word Yiddish. Um, I'm not sure which of these players uh, on the Warriors would speak Yiddish. I didn't do any research on them, but this is a man who's going to be involved with the new MLS franchise in Los Angeles. Uh, Keep that in mind, which probably won't be as noteworthy as some of the heat that the New York City FC slash Manchester City owners have gotten for their country's uh, human rights record that definitely will not win any awards from Amnesty International. But I just thought it was an interesting little tidbit that I saw pop up on my Twitter feed today. So, I mean, Chris, you're you're involved with writing on the MLS. I mean, what, what is your view of all this with uh, um, Chivas? Ah, it was a good question. Um, you know, I'll, I'll start with something that's a wee bit cynical, uh, and then I'll kind of try to get out of that mode quickly. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I tweeted the other day. I said, you know, I didn't know MLS had promotion and relegation, and here we see Orlando City and New York City coming on board. And, I, you know, jokingly, I, I said Kansas City and Houston have been promoted to the Western Conference, and Shivas have been relegated. And, <laughs> oh, you're beautiful, and, Chris. I love it. And, and you know, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but, but you know, uh, you, you know, I think this... One. I saw a lot of that on Twitter this week. Yeah, <laughs> and I actually saw out. saw somebody bite on, on my Twitter, but, you know, that happens all the time. But, um, the you know, the essence here is, okay, this is not a Leeds United issue, right? This is... Not really, no. I don't think you can compare those two. So, uh, and, you know, you had Glasgow. So this isn't a Glasgow issue either, really. So, you know, I mean... not, not, not Not in the sense of why this was being done. You know, Rangers had... The big issue was the failure to pay taxes to HMRC, uh, which included uh, what some people consider to be uh, criminal actions on the part of Chris White, who had been involved with Rangers prior to that happening. So that's, that doesn't compare with this either. Yeah, but 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 here's where it does. There There's a similarity here, and that has to do with management and leadership. Yeah. And, you know, when I look at you know, I've only followed MLS probably for three or four years now. And, you know, I mean, when I actually, you know, we've talked before, when I moved back to the States, you know, I I didn't, didn't get engaged at all in MLS. Uh, it's only when I actually moved to Portland that it's like, hey, this is like Europe, you know, all right, let's get engaged. So, um, 
but in the short period of time that I've that I've been following MLS, you know, Sheevis just hasn't been there. You know, on the pitch, mentally, physically, you know, boardroom, uh, leadership, management. I, you know, bless Wilmer Cabrera. I think he probably did the best anybody could do with what he had. But um, it, it, there, it, it's been like a, um, I won't say it's been a joke, but it's almost been a laughing stock for other supporters of other teams that take the game a little bit more seriously, have a little bit more passion. And, yeah. and you know, okay, so they, they got a club, you know, what is it, Chivas Guadalajara, right? That's what that In, was the mm-hmm. club. That was, yeah, which, so. Which was, which, was the, which was the mistake that really led to all this. Doing that was was what really led to the whole thing. I mean, you know, you know Jorge Vergara uh, certainly had his failing. Uh, there was the lawsuit uh, regarding the youth academy and people's uh, players' ancestry and coaches. Uh, not being Hispanic uh, and claims of being fired because for that reason, but really to me that was the starting point. Calling them Chivas USA was was the, was the big mistake that led to everything else. <clears throat> because you've got for two reasons. Number one, yeah, I realized they were well part of the problem. They were trying to be exclusively marketing the Hispanic market, which is which is another mistake. You don't want to market exclusively to anybody. You want everybody no matter where they came from, where their parents came from, what language they speak, whatever, you want everybody to show up and support your club. But to pick the name of the club that is Mexico's version of Manchester United, which is both loved loved and loathed in equal measure, that's really what started the whole thing. And they really, to me, never had a chance, as you said, with um, uh, Wilmer running the club. He was... He was fighting a sword fight with a butter knife at the end of it. All, at the end of the day, he really didn't have much of a chance because of all the management issues prior to that. Yeah, and and you know what? And and I've said it before, and I say it again. You know, it, it's leadership, and I'm really yeah. serious about that. I mean, you know, I got a lot of military background, and you know, if if you have leadership and you have commitment and passion and investment to go along with that commitment which I think you probably have from 95% of the rest of the MLS you know then then I think you you breed the opportunity for success and you know I, so they're they're not going to compete directly with with LA Galaxy obviously because they didn't provide the same level of investment that Galaxy did when they brought in Beckham um but that's not to say they couldn't have done that. That that was a management decision, a leadership decision, not to commit that level of investment. And you know, if if you're not willing to go in and play with the big boys, you don't belong. You you right. don't. And 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 it's a festering wound that's gone on for two or three or four or five years or even longer. But it's a festering wound that other clubs have taken advantage of. Oh, and, sure. That's, and that's and, a great point too, Chris, because it, it does it does expose it does show, as you pointed out, what other clubs have done. The successful clubs have done. I always remember the line from uh, Dennis, <coughs> the Great America's Cup sailor, 
always say, uh, this this to me sums up what you say about leadership. He always talked about having the commitment to the commitment, and you, that has to come from the top. That it has to work from the top down. And as you yeah. pointed out, it never happened that way with Chivas USA. But but what scares me, and I didn't recognize this earlier, is when you said this is the third time this has happened in MLS. And right. you yeah, know, when I wrote my article. Example. Yeah, when I wrote my article about a week ago, you know, one of the takeaways I had as an end state out of this mess with Chivas was there ought to be a documented process that MLS puts together that says, okay, these are the steps we're going to take when we've got leading indicators showing us that a club is starting to behave like Chivas. And when that's the case, then maybe you know you got to put the hammer down a little bit tighter, and 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 say you know we're not going to have another embarrassment. Either you're going to sell the club in two minutes and two seconds to somebody who's willing to invest, or you're done. Because we can't have a wound that festers like Shiva says for the last two or three years. It's, I mean, it, it it's really an embarrassment to the league as well. When you think, especially if it's the third time, I mean, I, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know what happened in Tampa. I do know that San Jose moved to Houston. Um, right, but that's not the same thing. They didn't fold, is my point. They, that was not a folding. That was a relocation. I'm talking right. about so, folding up. And, uh, and, then, and this, but this speaks to this speaks to we talked about uh, a couple of weeks a couple of weeks ago, uh, or last week I should say, and a couple of guys on Twitter. Uh, got my attention about it. I wish I could remember who they were. I didn't look at it, but I thank you guys for listening. We talked about you know, the business of sports being so much different from any other business. And mm-hmm. it, it goes to the point of you know, the team, teams in a league, they have to be on at least relatively level financial footing in terms of revenue and spending. Uh, you know, it's not like any other business because you need those other teams to be there. You can't have a game with only one team. It's that simple. All the teams are equal partners in it. They all have to have at least a reasonable level playing field from a, fi- from a financial standpoint, both in terms of revenue and in terms of spending. And if you and it, and it has, there has to be minimums too. If you go and read uh, about a fair ball, a fan's case for baseball, Bob Costas wrote it a while back in the mid nineties, I think it was. But he draws extensively for Andrew Zimlis, who's probably North America's number one sports economics expert. And that's one of the things they talk about a lot. Is there has to be there have to be minimums. It's not just about a cap at the top. There have to be minimums at the bottom. You know, certainly smart management can, in, in sports can overcome uh, a money uh, issue, more so, maybe more so in baseball than any other sport. But in soccer, to some extent, it does because. I know, you know, I know you talk extensively, Chris, and write extensively about metrics and things like that, but there are other factors that metrics can't measure that play into it, so, which, which is kind of a, a little bit akin to baseball. So, you know, Chivas, as you said, they cert- management didn't do a lot of things right. They certainly didn't have the level of a financial commitment uh, that other teams did. Certainly, while you don't necessarily have to get into an arms race, especially with a team like an L.A. Galaxy, uh, but certainly, there are parameters where you can, you have where you at least show 
to some extent, both from a spending standpoint as well as a, an attitude and how you run things standpoint, to show, okay, we're in there competing. We might have to do it a little bit differently than LA Galaxy. Certainly. We, you know, we might have to be a little more creative in that respect, but we're here. We're showing a commitment, and we never saw that from Chivas, especially when Jorge Vergara was in charge. Yeah, I'm going to interrupt yeah. both of you real quick. Yeah. Um, it looks like we've got another person online, and I don't know this number. Caller, nice. Yeah, that's all this? I know for sure. It's Florida. I know that much. It's well, Bruce. It... Oh, I didn't say, hear say you. Say that again. It's Bruce Silverman. Bruce Silverman. All oh, right. Bruce Silverman. Bruce, the purpose, Bruce Silverman, this is perfect. He, he's the voice of so of the Fort Lauderdale striker on South, South Florida radio. Sorry, I, when I saw Fort Lauderdale, I should have known it was you. Um, I wanted to have you on. I wanted to have you on for a bit because I've become quite a strikers fan. I live in Buffalo, New York. Um, what is it like down there to to cover this team? It has been, for, for me, it's been a trip. I grew up as a Strikers fan. I, first game I went to, June 8, 1977, Strikers and the Cosmos, and Canalia, Pele, and Beckenbauer went for a 3 nothing win over what I refer to as the lads from Lauderdale. And ever since then, I've been in love with the team, in love with the sport, and now, 37 years later, to be broadcasting the games is 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 pretty wild for me. Well, Bruce, this is Case Calkin. I just want you to know, it's nice to have somebody in my age bracket on the show for a change. <laughs> I do appreciate that part of something else. Well, Bruce, uh, this is Chris Gluck. I'm, I'm out in Portland, Oregon, and uh, pleasure to meet you, good sir. I appreciate you guys having me on, on the show. I know... Uh, Steven's been listening to the broadcast all season long, and I appreciate that. And hopefully we, we've done a good job of entertaining the listeners and, and painting a picture of what the strikers are doing on the field and what it's like to be inside Lockhart Stadium. And, and it's going to be interesting because Saturday night is going to be a very, very telling game for this franchise. They, they just need a draw, a draw or a win to get into the playoffs. And it would be a lot of fun to see what this team could do in a four-game, in, in basically a two-game, four-team shootout to see who gets to be called NASL champions. Well, I know I haven't had the pleasure to listen to you yet, Bruce, but Stephen does have a lot of good things to say about about you and your work down there as one who does uh, play-by-play on a lot of different sports is trying to maneuver my way up the ladder uh, from the uh, from the professional uh, soccer ranks. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, as you make your way up, we can kind of you know, work together a little bit and maybe no, uh, be great. show so many. Show we got to show so many people the networks. Hey, it isn't just the English who can do this job. You know, some of us Americans aren't too bad at it either. <laughs> as long as you call well, it a pitch I, and not a field, right? You know yeah. what? I, it, it, you know, it, it really depends upon what your style is and. <clears throat> I, I know that there are a tremendous amount of soccer purists out there, and you have to call it a side, and you have to call it a pitch, and you know. And, and then in my style, I believe the the more that you can relate to the masses, and, and the more that you can bring into the beautiful game, the better. So when I'm laying out the land 
and I'm talking about the strikers lineup and I talk about their backcourt, I'm referring to their defense. Yeah. And and I use terms that I think people that are sports fans can relate to. And when they start to picture those words against the game of soccer and start to combine them, I think that your interest level increases, and I also think that your knowledge of the game increases because you can relate it. One of the biggest things that we hear about soccer is, I don't understand it. I don't know the rules. How many times during the summer did we hear people who were watching um, World Cup games come back and say, I love watching. I don't know the rules. I don't understand oh, the I, game. But I, I got that. For, I got that all month long. And uh, you, you made a good point because it's something I I will do, uh, especially when there's actually action going on. I I will bring in terminology from especially hockey or basketball, which I've done a lot of. And uh, I I think it I do think it helps uh, in terms of educating. I I try not to overdo it in that respect because I realize there are people out there who do understand the rules a lot more certainly than were 20 years ago, uh, and I don't want to seem, I don't want to come across pandering. And this is, John Miller talked about it. John Miller, everybody knows, a great baseball sure, broadcaster. Absolutely. One of his, but one of his earliest gigs was doing Oakland Stompers games in the North American Soccer League. And so he, he talked about, I remember reading about him talking about the same thing, uh, uh, although on a more, and the more his probably you know, he had much more uh, uh, an audience that was not nearly as educated uh, as an audience would be today. But it's something I do try to draw. I try to draw on occasionally for those people who might not understand fully what's going on. But I don't want to talk. I don't want to seem like I'm, I'm pandering to them or talking or talking down to the person who really does know what's going on. It is a, it is a fine line to walk, but I think for anybody who's American getting into broadcasting the game, I think that's that's a, a good way to go to have to bring in some terminology from other sports so people can uh, figure things out a little bit easier. My hey, style is, is I just like to have fun on the broadcast. I like to be entertaining. Um, I like to use descriptive words. Uh, to me, there's no right or wrong answer to play-by-play, you know, Yes, there are plenty of people that feel the only way that you can listen to an English broadcast of a soccer game is to hear someone with an, with an accent. Well, the only accent I have is somewhat of a northern accent, and if that doesn't do it Me for too. you, that's okay. <laughs> but we, know, we were talking about accents earlier before we, yes. before <laughs> we actually got together. <laughs> Roy, you know, listen. But to me... But to me, it, it, it's all about it's all about having fun. I mean, I get the privilege and I get the, the the fun in broadcasting a game in South Florida. So, and Stephen knows this from listening to, to the broadcast. If you're going east, you're going towards the beach, because at Lockhart Stadium, it's a few miles west of the beach. So, if you're heading east, you're going towards the beach. So, if I got a corner kick in the southeast corner, that's the South Beach corner. If you're going west at Lockhart Stadium, you're going towards the airport because there's an <laughs> airport just to the other side. And it was funny because right. a couple of games ago, big James Marceline, um, Haitian, um, member of the Haitian national team, kicked the ball from about 40 out, kicked it so hard, so high, it disappeared into the night. We thought he kicked it onto a runway. It disappeared for a second, 
and he ends up hitting a post that holds a scoreboard in the uh, west end zone of the stadium, which doesn't <laughs> operate anymore. And the ball comes ricocheting back towards the field. But for a second, I was like, he just kicked it out of the stadium, and I think it just landed on a runway. Boom, it just comes back. The kid's <laughs> leg is so hard, he, he goes over the goal, over the stands, over the railing that separates the, the top tier of, um, of the stadium, the fence, and hit basically what is a two-foot-wide round post and bounce back. <laughs> That's how strong he is. I, I wow. joked. Oh, I yeah. joked with one of the guys. I joked with one of the players on Saturday afternoon. I said, "I would love to see you guys let Marceline take the the opening kick from from the from the center stripe and just kick it fifty yards and see what happens." Because that's how that would be. That yeah, that's how big his leg is. And the strikers this year um, had a great had a great opening a number of weeks ago. Um, Fafa, um, Fafa Pakal, which he just likes to be known as Fafa, and on my broadcast, everybody's Brazilian, you get one name. Um, <laughs> he he scored 26 seconds into a game. Uh, fastest, fastest goal in the history of the Strikers, uh, fastest goal in the history of the modern NASL, and I think it was the second or third in the history of, of the league, if you count the golden and the modern errors. So, yeah, hey, Bruce, we were talking about Sheevas uh, and MLS, and, you know, I, maybe you can help me here. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about NASL other than the old days in the 70s when they kind of blew all the rules from FIFA out the door, but it, NASL, it's not promotion relegation. It's It's a franchise league, right? Correct. Okay, so... Bill Peterson you know, wants to change have that, you had have you had the ugly uh, scenario in the last year or two in NASL where you've had a a club similar in poor leadership in management to Shivas sure. where they've had to uh, relegate him or dump him out of the league for a couple years. It, it, there is a there is a scenario going on right now in the league. Um, where the Atlanta franchise, the Atlanta Silverbacks, um, I, I, I would say if I was to handicap it right now, I would say there's less than a 5% chance that Atlanta will be playing in the NASL next season. But, yeah, but wasn't the there a the talk that... talking about selling the team because of the Atlanta, the MLS team that's coming in? Well, there, there's, a lot of, there, there's a lot of reasons why why that team may be sold, and I, and I know that there's talk about the team being sold and moved to another location and the name Silverbacks just staying in Atlanta and then maybe then going to USL Pro. Um, I think that's the likely scenario. I don't know what city um, would be the leading candidate for them to move to. Uh, yeah. there's, a, there's a couple of interesting things going on. In, in the uh, NASL right now, the Strikers, for instance, were just sold. The um, the deal was announced a little over a month ago. The new owners don't officially take over until the season is over. So, season could be over on November second if the Strikers end up losing on Saturday night and Carolina wins and Carolina gets the fourth spot in the playoffs. The season could end for the Strikers. Uh, realistically, if they if they win or draw against Ottawa on on Saturday night, 
Their first game would be up in Minnesota, best team in the league uh, by far. The Strikers have not had a lot of success against them, so the the season for them could end on on November 8th. Team could uh, be taken over on November 9th. They go and they win there, and they end up playing in the Soccer Bowl. Then the season would be over on November 16th. So by November 16th, new ownership will be in place, uh, regardless of what happens in the playoffs in Fort Lauderdale. Three Brazilians are partnered up. Um, not a lot of uh, indication on what exactly the franchise is going to look like in terms of management. You have two very long-time, uh, big-time soccer names in Tim Robbie, whose family owned the original Strikers, and Tom Mulroy, who is known as Soccer Tom, who uh, played in the old NASL, played for the 1984 Fort Lauderdale Sun that won the uh, – championship in the old ASL and the major indoor soccer league with the New York arrows. And absolutely. So, so Tom is, is the president of the organization. Tim runs a lot of the soccer related things. Uh, No indication on whether or not either one of those guys are going to be back or anybody else in the front office are going to be back. So a lot of uncertainty in Fort Lauderdale as they move forward. Today was a good day for Jacksonville coming into the league as an expansion team. In 2015, they released their kits today, good-looking kits. Nike is their uh, manufacturer, and Winn-Dixie is one of the two. It's their main, but Winn-Dixie is one of their two jersey sponsors. So for a new franchise, they seem to be doing things very, very well. In Jacksonville this year, there were two expansion teams. One was in Indianapolis with the Indy 11. The other one was the Ottawa Fury. Ottawa is playing in the same building as the CFL team, the TD Place, and they've got a beautiful facility up there, put together a nice franchise this year, but growing pains um, when you're in a in a league where there is no salary cap, there is no draft, and you have to go out and, and front up your team. And then Indianapolis, which struggled mightily at the beginning of the season, has rattled off some really nice wins in the last few weeks led the NASL in attendance, selling out every single game this season, going nearly 11,000 a night. Yeah. So there's no salary cap at all, Bruce? There's no salary cap in the league? There is no salary cap at all in the NASL. So you want to go out and you want to spend $30 million on a payroll, you could do it. I don't know that you make your money back spending $30 million. But there are some teams that have spent some cash. Um, salaries aren't as well-known and as public as maybe some other teams or sports. Um, the Cosmos went out and got Marco Senna, and, and he has contributed mightily to them. There's a couple other teams that have gone out and, and spent some money. But there's some really nice talent in the NASL. You look at the call-up, the national team call-up, um, bringing the kid in from Minnesota, uh, yeah, I heard about so that. You had, you know, that made some headlines. Um, yep. There's a guy down here in Fort Lauderdale, like I mentioned before. His name is Fafa. He's about five seven. He's lightning quick. They call him the Gazelle, and he's got 12 goals in 21 games. And oh. he came on late. He wasn't. He was one of those kids. Spent a uh, a season not doing much with the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Moved to um, moved to Europe, 
as a 16-year-old, faced um, a lot of racism and things like that at an early age. His game has absolutely exploded. Got a call up to the Haitian national team to play Chile, was injured and didn't play. His uh, teammate and cousin, James Marceline, did play for Haiti in that game. Uh, James Marceline, he, he, he played for the Timbers. Yes. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yeah, and that, he that was and, – and he was the one that I told you kicked the ball from 40 yards out right. and nearly kicked right. it out of the stadium. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I kind of rated him as a pretty pretty good, solid central midfielder. I don't know if he's doing that now, but he, he seemed he, to me – He's been a fill-in. The strikers have played him um, defensively. They've had him as a mid. Um the Strikers have been an interesting season, uh, team this year. They've had 26 games. They've had 26 lineups. They've had everything from injuries to visa issues to red card, I mean, not red card, yellow card mix-ups to guys leaving the team. And through it all, a gentleman by the name of Gunter Kronsteiner has done a magnificent job of figuring out how to put the right 11 on the field, make the right moves late in the game, and put the strikers in a position to make the playoffs. To me, he is without a doubt the coach of the year. And I'm not saying that because I broadcast the team. I'm saying that because if you look at the league and you look at what this team was expected to do with probably the lowest, if not one of the lowest payrolls in the league, he has assembled a ragtag group of players. Some guys have been cast-offs. Some guys showed up at tryouts and got, and got contracts. And he put together a team that has done very, very well in this league, find themselves currently in fourth place, and a win or a draw on Saturday night puts them in the top four of this league and gives them an opportunity to win a championship. And if yeah, you're you mentioned for a coach, that's what you want. Yeah. And you yeah. mentioned about the, going to the national team, you referred to Miguel Ibarra of Minnesota United. Correct. got into the national team. And uh, as well as um, uh, who you mentioned who played for Haiti, there was also uh, uh, Canada brought in uh, Hanson Bolakai from FC Edmonton to play for the Canadian national team as well. So it's certainly showing you know, the standard of play in the NASL is, is, is getting better. Uh, in the short term, and uh, certainly they have big ambitions. I know there was a thing I saw uh, earlier this week about Bill Peterson, the commissioner, wanting to get to a point where he has 18 to 24 teams and can do promotion and relegation uh, within the league. Uh, it's a, you know it's a pretty ambitious plan, but I like the fact that he wants to he wants he wants growth. He wants he he recognizes there's enough talent out there. Should Remind everyone, this is the Yellow Carter Podcast here on Blog Talk Radio with uh, Stephen Brandt and the co-host, myself, Keith Kokinda, Chris Block from uh, Possession with Purpose, and also Bruce Silverman, the voice of the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. And I want to mention, I want to get that stuff in now because the Internet is due to collapse here in the next 25 minutes as the college football playoff rankings are announced for the first time. There's going to be a lot of interest in that. Uh, we talked about nah. Stephen mentioned at the beginning of the show uh, about the women's game, and we wanted to talk on that since the uh, CONCACAF championship just wrapped up with the United States winning, and winning pretty convincingly, especially in the semifinal and the final. 
against Costa Rica. Um, I was I was watching uh, Carly Lloyd uh, being interviewed earlier today. Again, well, we've had a guest as a guest here on Yellow Card Podcast. He gave you on ESPNFC, and uh, you know, they were talking about uh, the, you know, the success of this tournament, how they're they're getting you know they've got a lot. There's a lot on their shoulders. You know, remember, the United States, despite all that they've done in the Olympics, the United States has not won the World Cup since 1999. The the legendary team of Mia Hamm, Julie Foddy, and Brandy Chastain, Brian Asturi, and the rest. It's and I know Cat Whitehill talked about it a lot during uh, the, the semifinal and the final. He talked about how what they're facing here in Concacaf in terms of tactics is not going to be the same as what they're facing when they get to the World Cup next summer. And uh, you, you have to, I have to say, you know, Jill Ellis has got a job, and, you know, she's got a large pool to pick them, obviously, but the job is to make sure that they can deal with the different styles they're going to be facing because they're going to be facing teams. Yeah, a lot, most of the teams they play try to bunker in and play defense for 90 minutes, and that's not going to work against this team. But they're going to be playing teams like in Germany, among others, that can not only play defense, but they can counterattack, and uh, this is this is it's going to be interesting to see, uh, especially uh, when uh, you know, with the schedule they're going to be running. Uh, they're going to be playing next month in a tournament uh, in Brazil as well. Okay, but do you have a question in there, Keith? Do you have, yeah, do you I'm have going a question to... <laughs> in there. Or... Yeah, I'm getting. So what kind? What kind of? How how big an adjustment do you, do you think that'll be in terms of transition what they face in Concacaf as opposed to what they're facing uh, going to be facing in Canada next summer? Well, if you're asking me, I, I think yeah. they need to figure out a way to get into a penalty kick situation and and have somebody take their shirt off. So other than that, <laughs> I don't I don't know. The real the reality of it is is that we should do very very well. And you look at what we did in those games in the last couple of weeks, and you expect that we should be dominant. The reality of it is, and this is what I found um, calling games, is you can look at a team and you could say, this team should be dominant, this team should win, but a ball bounces a funny way and somebody makes a mistake. And all of a sudden, a team that's not supposed to win can win. And you look at, and, and we were just talking before you asked the question about the women, and I wanted to jump on this, and then I'll, I'll leave you with this point, um, and then leave you to talk about the girls. The NASL did very, very well this season in the U.S. Open Cup. They had a number of really quality wins over MSL, MLS side. Carolina beat the LA Galaxy with Landon Donovan. That's nothing to sneeze at. There were a number of other teams throughout that did very, very well in the U.S. Open Cup. And I think the points that that Bill Peterson was making is that he believes that he can develop a league because of the business model and because of the owners that he's trying to put in place that he can put together a league that can compete with the MLS. I've made the suggestion to him that I would love to see the NASL drop the gauntlet and say, you guys crown a champion, we crown a champion, and let's play them off to see who the best American professional team is. 
Well, I can tell you now, what the answer would be. Hear those crickets chirping? Yeah, that, that, that would be your answer. I guarantee well, you sure. that, that much. Well, sure. I just, because I think, I've had, and I think, yeah, and I think Bill Peterson. Yeah, and one of the things, Bill Peterson, you talk about the ownership. I think one of the things. The one thing that's going to come up, and I've seen this come up many, many times over the last thirty some years following the game, is you've got you've you've got a lot of people who who have their own interests in mind, whatever those may be, financial or otherwise, as opposed to the game itself. Uh, as I've, I've often said on this show, if I could wave the magic wand that would make put all the professional teams in this country into one pool and they have full-fledged promotion and relegation, I'd have waited three years ago. But there's a, there are a lot of factors in terms of revenue, in terms of, of spending, in terms of the size of the country and the travel it takes, and the fact that you've got a lot of people who normally don't seem to inclined to cooperate with each other. Yeah, Bill Peterson at one point may throw down that gauntlet, as you, as you said, Bruce, but... Um, he better be prepared for a fight because I don't think it's going to be if he decides to try to get to the status where he thinks he's on a par with MLS. It's not going to go over too well in a lot of places. Well, and, and I, I understand was, that. Yeah. And I understand that. The, the, NS, the NASL, look, the NASL is four years old. Yes. If you looked at the NASL currently in its fourth year and you looked at the MLS in its fourth year, they're really not all that different. The, the benefit the MLS has, and it's a big one, they have a television deal, and that's huge. Yes. And that's something that the NASL needs to work on. Um, and I've had conversations you know, with Bill uh, about that and, and the importance of that. And, and certainly, I, I guess I look at it in, in a very interesting way. Not only am I the voice of the strikers, but I've been a sportscaster for 25 years. So I cover all sports. I host a talk show. Uh, I talk about all sports, not just soccer. I might be one of the few guys in South Florida, based in South Florida, that talks about soccer. But I've always done it. But when you look at it, you need to bring some of the casual sports fans to the game. I think the the NASL has an opportunity to do that. Um, You have... You have snobs, you have, snob, you have soccer snobs that will never accept the casual soccer fan or the casual sports fan getting involved in soccer. And I think that's a huge mistake, and I think it's, it, it's yes. a shame. It, it's yes, a shame. Yes. But I have met so many people now being associated with the Strikers and, and, and calling the games for the last few seasons that if you're not, if you're not a diehard diehard soccer fan, and if you can't tell me right off the top of your head how many points Manchester United has and why you absolutely hate Arsenal, then I don't want to talk to you. And and it's a shame because everybody seen, should be able I, to enjoy the game. And I've seen that personally. I remember, um, I think it was like uh, 2000 or so, 2000, 2001, I was at a crew game. I happened to talk across that with one of the some of the people, one of the early supporters. I can't remember which one it was off the top of my head. But I talked. Somebody recognized me uh, for what I was doing indoor soccer in the mid '90s. And when these people found out that I had been involved in indoor soccer, it was, it was like uh, it was like a 
a unicorn horn had sprouted out of my forehead. The reaction I got, and I thought that, and and I remember the early days of the the earliest of supporters clubs with MLS, uh, and it does, it's not as much as it was back then. But the early days of the sports club with MLS, it was you know your your club and the national team. That was the world of soccer to these people. Everything else, whatever level, whatever other country it was, didn't exist. And to a large extent, in this is that that attitude still exists as far as the soccer in this country. These a lot of these people, the hardcore supporters group, they don't pay much attention to the NASL or to the USL Pro, certainly not the college game, but the indoor game, again, they think... I'll, I'll give you the... Keith, that's a, that's a great segue for, for me to step in here because we're, we're, we're talking about women's soccer and then we're talking about NASL. And, you know, th- that segue kind of, kind of touches base, resonates with me in that, you know, I don't follow women's soccer a whole lot and I definitely don't follow the NASL a whole lot. But... But but here's what I can offer, and, you know, I'll leave others to decide whether or not it has merit. You know, women's soccer, I think in this country, attempts and tries to do a good job of playing at the same competitive level skill-wise as men's soccer. But but the game itself is slower, okay? It it just naturally is. Um, so So here's where I would go with that is – you know, you you don't need to draw a conclusion that the women's soccer team is comparable to the men's soccer team based upon skill level and that that skill level is going to get you the win because it's not. The skill level is is lower and slower. You don't need to have to make that quick turn like Diego Valeri makes or that, that quick vision sometimes that you see from Robbie Keane or you, you see from Thierry Henry or you see from normal players like, like Morales from Vancouver or Papa from, from Seattle or, or any, you know, any midfielder on any team. You don't need to see that turn-on-a-dime kind of skill from the women to get the win, I think. So, so you know, for, for me, it's, it's, it's about the skills, but it's also about the balance of the athletic skill that you have. Specifically, in some cases, are you simply faster and stronger than the opponent? And this kind of gets back to the old, you know, uh, not the EPL, but, the you know, back when England had their first division. And it was a physical game, and you had big center backs, and, and you had slow play, and you had fast play, and you had direct play. So, you know, I don't I don't think the, the speed of the game is there where it has to be like men's soccer. Um, now, with respect to the NASL, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get in the mode of defending or attacking one league versus another because I just simply don't follow the NASL. Um, but but here's what I would offer. Um, I I saw how Portland took their approach with respect to the Concacaf Champions League this year, and they didn't play first team. And and I have followed you know the MLS teams in the U.S. Open Cup, and more often than not, they don't play first team. They'll play some. They'll play a mix, a blend here, a blend there, but but they don't go out there with the first team 
and I think they do that with the understanding that the MLS playoffs are the thing and yep. the only thing in the U.S. Open Cup is an added thing, great thing. And, you know, the CONCACAF Champions League is an added thing that's a great thing, but it's not the playoffs. And, you right. know, I'm not, I'm not one to say that I agree or disagree with that. Is if You know, when, in looking back, you know, I won't speak for Caleb Porter, but I'd speak for myself as if I were in a position where I had to make a decision. I, I wouldn't go 75% in one game and 75% in another game. I'd go 100%. And if I get it, I get it. If I don't, I don't. But I want to go 100% because winning's critical. I, so, I, I would I would hope that teams would, would have that same philosophy. Unfortunately, I don't think that the NLS takes the friendlies as serious as, as maybe they should in, in terms of helping grow the game. Well, they, and, and I think definitely that, don't I think, think they do with the, the NASL, Bruce. I'm sorry? I said I definitely don't think they do that with the NASL either. I mean, they don't they don't take it that serious. They're not playing no, first-team players. I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And, and I, I think it hurts the American game. I, I think that the, the U.S. Open Cup has the possibility of being a really, really interesting tournament. Oh, um, yeah. But if you, have, if you have some teams that are taking it seriously and some leagues that are taking it seriously – then it's a really great. It can be a really great thing, but if you have a situation where uh, a team is going, you know what? This is a great opportunity for us to go, say, seventy-five percent, and let's take some guys that don't get a lot of playing time and let's see what they can do. Yeah, and and then you're not really worried about winning or losing, and and I think those scenarios do exist. Um, I, I think that kind of comes. I think that kind of comes from the top. And and it is the mindset of the MLS when it comes to CONACAF or it comes to uh, the U.S. Open Cut, and it's unfortunate. And, and going back to what I was saying before about, and you guys jumped on it too, about um, soccer snobs and, and people that, that only think their league is important, there are there are people, and you can find them on, on Twitter because they tweet constantly, um, that are down in Miami that only are rooting – for the MLS team in Miami. That is their team. That is their side. It is the team they're going to support and they're going to live and die for. Um, the problem is I don't know what their record is, and, and I don't know in the new alignment of the MLS that came out today where the Miami franchise is playing. They're but not they even playing. That's my You mean Orlando City? No, 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 I'm talking about Miami. There's a group of supporters in Miami. Their team is, is Miami MLS or, or Miami United or, or Beckham United or whatever they want to call themselves. And it's a team that may or may not ever take the pitch, but they refuse. Oh, it will. It will. Now, I, I, I'm, not so, I'm not so sure because of the political climate in Florida, in South Florida, because of stadium deals gone bad. In the past, I'm not so sure that Beckham oh, yeah, is going to end up playing. I've seen all that stuff, and believe me, I, the only way it doesn't happen if Beckham decides I'm not doing this, it's not worth it. I do it. As long as Beckham stays, in my opinion, 
as long as Beckham stays involved, it's going to happen because MLS wants to keep him in ownership. They want that. They cut that deal with him for a reason. And the only, I don't, I don't see any other scenario where it doesn't happen uh, that doesn't involve Beckham stepping back, say I'm done with it, and, and that can well, happen. I've seen all the stories about how difficult it's been down there. Well, I've been down here for 40 years. The uh, the city and the county and the area are still incredibly smarting from the, and when I say smarting, I don't mean in a good way, from the absolutely horrific deal that they made with Big and Little Enos, the two idiots that run the Florida Marlins. You're okay. being generous when you call you're being very generous when you use those terms for him for the for him. <laughs> well I think it's I think it's a perfect nickname and here in, in my studio where I am right now, there is a picture on the wall and I have a lot of pictures from different sports and, and, and different figures in sports and there is a picture of Pat McCormick and Paul Williams, uh, big and little Enos, and they're on the wall for a reason and that's what I call Jeffrey Loria and and, uh, and David Sampson, because if you look at them, it's it's you know the the big guy and his pygmy son. Um, yeah, slime you know, would be more my it. word for them, but <laughs> you know the reality of it is is that those guys got a six hundred million dollar stadium that is going to cost taxpayers two point one billion dollars by the time it's paid off. And the problem with what the MLS wants is the MLS wants what the MLS wants. And they are adamant about a downtown stadium. They are adamant about a waterfront stadium. And it's simply not going to happen. There is not enough waterfront land that is going to go towards a stadium. Yeah, it would be picturesque. It would be beautiful. It would look fantastic on television. But the reality of it is that wherever they want to build it, it's not going to happen. The land's not going to be given to them. They're not. They're not going to be given a sweetheart deal. And for those reasons and a lot more, I just don't see it happening. If it was going to happen, I think it would have already happened. The ultimately, ultimately, the best place for an MLS team is exactly where there was an MLS team years ago, and that is at Lockhart Stadium in Fort Lauderdale. It is the center of South Florida. It is the only place in the history of professional soccer in South Florida that professional soccer has been successful. And I know that there are detractors that will say the strikers were not successful. (laughs) Sorry, if you talk about the NASL, there's basically three teams that you talk about in the NASL, the Cosmos, the strikers, and the Rowdies. And anybody that's going to tell you that one. What's that? Amen to that. That's that's the point yeah. of why I'm writing the book about this about the old strikers. Because I, I I taught you probably know the t- probably know the um, guys from the tail not the tailgate the tailgate show. I was I talked yeah, to them about cool. that because I'm writing a well, I'm, ta- I'm writing a book on the 1980 um, Fort Lauderdale strikers. And I, I pointed okay. out and I said if you think if you think about if you think about the sport for people that are 35 and up, there's really about four teams you know of. You know the Strikers, you know the Rowdies, you know, you know the Cosmos, and probably Portland. Okay. I, I, I buy into that. And, the, the, see, and here's the thing. There are people, and especially these, these, these MLS Miami guys, you know, because I've gotten into it with them on, on Twitter, although I think they might have blocked me because I haven't seen them post in a long time. Uh, <laughs> they, tell, they tell me that the Strikers were a failure, 
and the NASL was a failure, and that the Fusion was a failure. And sorry, but the only reason that the strike that you could say the Fusion the Fusion were a failure, and I and I'm not among them. The league failed the Fusion. The the fans did not fail the Fusion. The the Fusion was getting better as a team. They, I mean, yeah. look, right, so right the last two the last two years they were definitely on the upswing. No question about that. They didn't start and out that the, great, and they were on the upswing, and they were on the upswing in attendance too. Yes, the that was my point. MLS MLS was in a very precarious position when they decided to contract Tampa Bay and Miami instead of going and finding better ownership. And the and the issue with the fusion was ownership. They had an owner who was in over his head, who didn't know how to support a team, although they had great people running it, and they had a phenomenal front office, and they had tremendous talent on the field. And if you want to talk soccer in South Florida, and you want to be thoroughly entertained, the number one guy you want to go to is Ray Hudson. Ray Hudson to me is, Rocky is South Florida soccer. And if you get an opportunity to talk to him, and I have on a few occasions, I've had him on my radio show, I mean, he's one of those guys where all you have to do is say hello, you can sit back and you can go out, have dinner, come back, he's still talking, and he's still answering your first question. And, yeah, and I know. I, I knew a guy. Who, I know a guy. Who, I knew a guy who played for Miami Fusion. and he told me a couple of stories about how how lousy the owner was. So I, I could I could attest to that. Yeah, and the unfortunate oh. thing is, they pulled the plug. They panicked. It's a different. It's a completely different situation than Chivas, because the league was mature at, at the point of Chivas. You know, the, with the strikers, and I'm uh, not strikers. I'm sorry. With the fusion, with the mutiny, they just panicked. They pulled the plug. If they had sat one more year and they had gone out and actively pursued a, a new owner, the team would still be in existence today. I do believe that they would be known today as Fort Lauderdale Strikers. They would be, be playing in a brand-new state-of-the-art facility that probably would have been built about seven years ago. But if you remember, one of the things that the MLS was bragging about when they brought the Miami Fusion to Lockhart because they couldn't get a deal with um, with the Orange Bowl, and that actually worked to their favor because soccer has never worked in the Orange Bowl. But when they made the deal and they brought the Fusion to Fort Lauderdale, they bragged about it being the very first soccer-only facility in MLS. It became the model and then they abandoned their own model. Well, I want, I want to interrupt everybody right now. We've got 60 seconds left. Bruce, where can we find you on um, Twitter? Uh, on Twitter is at Silverman Show. The website is SilvermanOnSports.com. And um, you can go on there, listen to the broadcast, listen to the podcast, listen to the Strikers games, and um, like me on Facebook. And that's Silverman on sports as well. All right. Thank you. And Chris Gluck is um, possession with purpose. Keith Okinda, you always see him on Twitter. He's just playing Keith Keith Okinda. I'm Stephen Brandt, and we will talk to you guys next week. Thanks, Okay, thanks, Stephen.
Take care, guys.